Ephesians chapter 1. So we look at a lot of verses, those of you who are maybe just tuning in or just joining in. We've been studying one book at a time. Uh, we're up to the 10th book of the New Testament, uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, so we're going to start in Acts chapter 20 and Ephesians chapter 1. So some vital statistics of the book of Ephesians. We see there's, 20, there's six chapters. There are 155 verses. There's a little over 3,000 words. It's written by Paul. He writes it approximately 64 AD, so it's a little later than some of the other books we've, um, we've approached and looked at. Uh, Paul was the founder of the church at Ephesus. And if you flipped in your Bible, he made a couple of visits to Ephesus. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, I'm not turning there, that was Paul's first visit to Ephesus, and he didn't really stay there super long because he had to get to Jerusalem. He says, I have to be at Jerusalem because he had a feast he was going to attend. And in Acts chapter 19, he makes another visit, and he's preaching there. And he spent a lot of time there because in Acts chapter 20, in verse 31, he's telling the elders from Ephesus before he goes off, to be arrested in Jerusalem, he visits with the elders of Ephesus. That's the last church and he addresses. And he tells them, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul invested three years in these people. So he spent a long time at the church at Ephesus there with the brethren Ephesus. And he writes this letter during his first imprisonment in Rome. And he writes it 10 years after he's established the church at Ephesus. And this is really, it's, it's special because it's the last church that Paul addresses. And this is the first church that John mentions in Revelation 2. So you're really here at church history really beginning proper. Like church history really is starting right here. The church as we know it today is really beginning in this, with Ephesus here. Um, now, the church at Ephesus is the mature church of the book of Acts. Now, you, when you read through 1 John chapter 2, you see that God talks about three groups of people. He talks about little children, he talks about young men, and he talks about fathers. And you see there are three churches throughout the book of Acts that reflect that growth and development that we see in the churches, right? The little children would be the church at Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem in Acts 1, you know, starts over there. Acts 2, I should say. The church of Jerusalem is the church in its infancy. They're babies. You know what babies? They don't know any better. So the church of Jerusalem, they're loud, like a baby's loud. They're noisy, like a baby's noisy. They're needy, like a baby's needy. And they don't really know a lot about who they are and what's going on. That's the church of Jerusalem, the infant church. Then you got the young men. That's the next stage of development. The church at Antioch are the young men. The young men are noted for their strength and the overcoming the wicked one. And the church at Antioch is now the church in its strength, its activity, its ascending church, its a teaching church, its a giving church. It's a great church. It seems like it might have been Paul's home church. The Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. So Antioch is a great church. It's active, it's vibrant, it's strong, like a young man is supposed to be. But then 1 John mentions fathers. And Ephesus is that church in its maturity. The church in knowledge. And it's the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesus, where we get the deep doctrines of the body of Christ and the body mystery revealed to us. So the church at Ephesus is the fathers. That's the mature church, the knowledgeable church. It seems that Timothy, Paul's protege, is the pastor of the church at Ephesus or is ordained the church, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Now you see on your sheet, there's a lot of key phrases. In Christ Jesus, walk together, therefore, wherefore, according to, in heavenly places, riches, love. It's a deep book. I'm going to try to give it a little bit of justice. I can't in 40 to 50 minutes, but I'll, I'll try. Let's look at Ephesians 1. Let's look at these key verses here. Ephesians 1, uh, verse number 22. Ephesians 1, uh, 22, the Bible says... Um, that Christ, God, hath put all things under his feet, meaning Christ, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Five, look at chapter 5, verse 30. Chapter 5, verse 30. <clears throat> speaking to Christians now. He's not speaking to lost people here. He's speaking to believers. Are you saved? <laughs> Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have your sins been washed away in his blood? Then the book of Ephesians is directed to you. And he says in 5.30, for we, the people that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Can you just see to that? Because they're coming in the back door. All right? Uh, yeah. For we are members of his body. Hey, never a dull moment, folks. Uh, for we are members of his body. <laughs> this is coming to you live, not on tape, right? <laughs> They're coming in the back door, guys. They're coming in the back door, quick. <laughs> Take defensive positions, right? For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Um, and I hope you're in that we, <laughs> right? You don't have to be French to be in that we. We, we, right? For we, it's a blessing to be able to say that we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. That's a blessing to just be able to say that. Uh, we say it so casually sometimes we say it so I don't want to say flippantly but sometimes we say it so often that familiarity breeds contempt but take that in that you can say I'm a member of the body of Christ that is miraculous other people in other parts of history couldn't say that you can say I am a member of his body of his flesh and of his bones so glory to God so the Lord so the key message is the church the body of Christ this church at Ephesus is going to get the deep knowledge, the revelation of what this thing called the church, this body mystery is all about. What is this thing that we're a part of? It's in Ephesus and so the, in the book of Ephesians that we get that. So the Lord prepared, now watch this, the Lord prepared a physical body for Jesus Christ to suffer in, right? He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Praise his name. And the Lord prepared a spiritual body for Jesus Christ to be glorified in. That's us, right? He had a physical body to suffer and die for our sins in, and you, the body of Christ, the spiritual body, not this local church, but all Christians all over the place that have been part of that body, there's people in the Philippines, there's people in North Korea, there's people in Russia, there's people in North Africa, there's people with church buildings, there's people living in huts, there's people all over the place, Everybody that's called on the name of Jesus Christ has been put into that one body, 1 Corinthians 12. And we are a body prepared not for Jesus to suffer in, but for Jesus now to be glorified in. Amen? Amen. Now, we have two epistles about justification by faith, right? Remember that? We have Romans, which gives us the doctrine, and we've got Galatians, which gives us the defense. Well, we've got two epistles that talk about the body of Christ. We've got Ephesians, which focuses on the body, and we've got Colossians, which focuses on the head, right? So we've got two books about that as well. And so Jesus Christ is pictured as our bridegroom. Who is he in the book of Ephesians? He's our bridegroom. And we'll talk about that relationship a little later on. Now, the old, in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon is the great picture of Jesus Christ and his bride. It's about the love affair that your relationship with Jesus Christ should be. If your relationship with Jesus Christ is getting stale, you might need to put some work in and get back to the fact that it's a love affair. This whole thing is supposed to be a love affair. The book of the Song of Solomon is about a man, Solomon, just in crazy love with this bride, this Shunammite woman, and it's this passionate love song between the two of them and that is the picture of what your life with Christ is supposed to be it's not supposed to be rules and regulations and I's to dot and T's to cross that's religion it's supposed to be a crazy love affair where Jesus is head over heels in love with you and you're falling head over heels in love with him that's what it's supposed to be. I don't want to go back and re-preach the Song of Solomon. I could do it. But that's what it's supposed to be. And the book of Ephesians, then, is the fulfillment of that picture. The book of Ephesians is the Song of Solomon of the New Testament. 
It takes us into that inner chamber and shows us this love affair between you and your Savior, Christ and his bride. So it breaks down really well. I mean, they all break down well because God broke them down. But it's very instructive the way it's broken down. Chapters 1 to 3, as you see on your sheet, are doctrinal. They're about the heavenly things. It's about your position in Christ. It's about you in Christ and your standing. In fact, in that first three chapters, you see this expression, heavenly places, mentioned four times. Look at them with me, all right? Ephesians 1, verse number 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Ephesians 1, 3. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So the first thing it says is, all of your blessings, church, are in heavenly places in Christ. I'm thankful for some money in my pocket. I'm thankful for a nice home. I'm thankful that I'm not begging and wondering where my next meal is going to come from. There are Christians that do that, you know that? So I'm thankful for those things. But that's not where my blessings are. If God took everything away, the retirement, the pension, the 401k, the job, if he took it all away, he's still good. And he's still blessed you exceeding abundant. I know it's easy to say that when you still got money in your pocket. I hope I'll say that when I don't have money in my pocket. But you know what? Because I don't have a lot of money in my pocket. But you know what? Your blessings aren't here. And a lot of Christians are trying to build a kingdom. They think it's all down here. And if you realize that everything about the church is up there, that all of our blessings are out there and up there, maybe you won't hold on to this place so tight down here. Because when Jesus Christ says, come up hither, he's just taking you. He ain't taking your cars, and he ain't taking your wardrobe, and he ain't taking your money, and he ain't taking your stuff. He says, come up hither. He's not taking anything. There's no U-Haul. And I'll be like, God, just let me get this. No. You're leaving it all behind because your blessings are in heavenly places in Christ. They're spiritual. Everything about the church is likened to the moon. The moon never touches the earth, right? We are in, we have heavenly blessings, right? Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Here's the second time which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So, one, your blessings are in heavenly places. Two, Christ is in heavenly places. He didn't stay down here. He's seated up there. Now, that's important because of number three, chapter 2, verse 6. Look at chapter 2, verse 6, right? Chapter 2, 6 says, that God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If Jesus Christ is up there, that means you're seated up there in him. Now that's an amazing thing. You ever read over there in John chapter 3 when Jesus says, he's talking to them, right? And he says, the Son of Man which is in heaven. And he's talking to these people and he's saying, the Son of Man is in heaven. What? I'm talking to you, Jesus. I can slap you in the face right here. I can touch your feet. I can grab your arms. You're right here. He says, no, no. You see my body here. But I'm really, I'm, I'm up there in heaven. <laughs> and you know what? If you're in Christ, you got the same testimony. I'm looking at Ray, and I'm looking at Deborah, but I'm just, I'm just looking at their bodies. As far as God is concerned, you're signed, sealed, and delivered. As far as God is concerned, you're already sitting up there in heavenly place in Christ. We sing the song, right? I'm sitting, right? Um, I'm already there in Jesus. I'm waiting for my body to be, right? I'm sitting up there in the heavenly fair at the right hand of the Father. We're already up there. God, it's already done as far as God's concerned. You know, if you were looking at a history book, and you were standing outside of history, you're just flipping through it, right? The Napoleonic Wars would be done. Uh, the, the American Revolution would be done. It would all be finished. You're just flipping through it. God's standing outside of history. He says, oh, Mal's already up there. <laughs> Danny's already up there. It's finished as far as God's concerned. He's outside of this thing called time. He sees it already done and complete. That should encourage you. That's where you really are. That's your home. And then 310, 310 says this. To the intent... Then now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. There are, now this is a deep study, but there are thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, and there are rulers 
out there in the heavenlies. Many of them are evil, right? The Bible talks about the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, right? There's a whole type of government going on out there in the heavenlies, and these angelic beings are watching you. And you are testifying the wisdom of God to them. Amen. You're teaching them. That's, that's, that's mind-blowing, right? That's mind-blowing. Um, now, that's the first chunk. That's the first section. The second section is chapters 4 to 6, right? Chapters 4 to 6 is the practical, the earthly. It's not about your position. It's about your condition. It's not about you in Christ. It's about Christ in you. It's not about your standing that's fixed and finished and done. It's about your state that can change from day to day. Let's look at some things. There's one word that's key in here, right? Walk. In over here, the key phrase is in heavenly places. Because that's where you really are. The key for word over here that appears six times, the number of man, is the word walk. Because the second section is all about your walk down here in the flesh, right? Let's look at it, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore beseech, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. The first thing he says about your walk is walk worthy of it. Remember your calling. He says, I just spent three chapters telling you who you really are in Christ. Now, walk worthy of that. Look at chapter, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. He's saying, not just remember your calling, but watch your conceits. You know, the Bible says a foolish man has got more hope than a guy that's got a conceit. You know what a conceit is? It's a belief. It's a thought that you hold to and you think is true, but it ain't true if, it isn't, if it's contrary to the Bible. But it feels so real, and it governs your actions, and it might even affect the emotions you feel in your body, but you've got to tell yourself, if it doesn't line up with this book, it's not true. And that's where people stumble and fail, including myself, where we start to get, we latch on to these conceits, these ideas, these thoughts that are fested in our mind, and they made a little abode there. And the Bible says a foolish man has more hope than a guy just caught up in his own conceits. Because when you get that thing locked in your mind, it affects everything you do, because you are what you think. So watch what you think. Be careful of those conceits. Throw them down. Cast them down. Because a lot of the people out there, for lack of a better word, they're dumb on purpose. I don't know what's going on. They're just, they're just, this is a not nice word, you know, stupid. The, 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 the thinking out there is empty. It's vain. You couldn't think up, if you wanted to, you couldn't think up such dumb ideas sometimes. Sometimes you ever watch the news, I don't try not to, would you sit back and go, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That is so dumb. It's almost like you're trying to be dumb. That's so dumb. And they're all patting each other on the back, like, what a great job you did. What a great idea. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. You know, anybody who, who worked for a living or has half a sense is going to say that's a dumb idea. But, you know, let's just, you know, let's, that's, and I don't want to get on what I could be referring to, but there's too many dumb things out there to mention, but it's just dumb. And God says, don't walk according to that thinking. Look at verse of chapter 5, verse 2. Or else I'm never going to finish this. 5-2, he says, walk in love. Right? Have some consideration. Remember the sacrifice of Christ. Remember how he considered you. And maybe you could consider him a little bit. Chapter 5, verse 8. Walk as children of light. He's asking about your consistency. Bless you. Is your character consistent with your confession? Right? You're supposed to be a child of light. You're not a child of the devil anymore. You understand that, right? This whole thing we're talking about, we're in a battle between light and darkness. From Genesis chapter 1, this whole Bible splits between light and dark. You are a child of the darkness. He says you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Isn't that a blessing? You're not in the dark anymore. You know what's up. Right? You know what's coming. You can decipher the world. You can interpret what's around you. Now you have an immeasurable standard, an unfallible standard, the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you can figure stuff out. Now you're not in the dark. Walk as children of light. 
Don't you know? Be consistent with your confession. And then lastly, 5.15, he says, walk circumspectly. Exercise caution because you're in a war. If you're a soldier walking through a minefield, you're going to walk pretty carefully. If you're a soldier walking through enemy territory, you're going to be looking all around you to make sure you don't get your head blown off. And Christians walk around like they're the dumbest people in the world. <laughs> you know, like the world is your friend. No, the world is your enemy. You've got to walk circumspectly. You don't have to walk like, you know, like you're intellectually constipated all the time, afraid of everything. Like, I'm not saying that. Just don't, you know, don't misstep. Watch. Walk, watch where you're stepping. Watch where you're walking. And the book is so instructive. We'll talk about it at the end. So let's go back to Ephesians 2. And what I want to do is, since the book is so much about the church, I want to just spend some time really breaking down the three big pictures of the church in this book. The building, the body, and the bride. Because those three big pictures really anchor the whole book. He compares us, the Holy Spirit, to a building, to a body, and a bride with an emphasis on the body. So let's start with the first one. Ephesians 2, 19 to 21. The first picture in here. The church is a building, 219. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, that's you, fitly framed together, that's you, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. The church is a building. You're not an outsider anymore i got to be honest with you. When I walk in at 610 and there's 3,000 people in this building and I'm wheeling a cart and holding a white state thing under my arm, you know what? I feel like a stranger. <laughs> when the PTA is looking at me like, what are you doing here? I feel a little bit like a stranger. It's a little uncomfortable. I'm just going to make a confession. I confess my fault to you, right? It's a little like, mm, okay, hi, I'm trying not to, you know, excuse me, you know. But when I walk in, you know, in God's program, I'm not a stranger. <laughs> I'm actually part of the building, <laughs> right? And... Uh, we're making a holy temple for God to inhabit. Now, this is just a little preaching. Are you living holy? Because God inhabits us, and he wants us to be a holy temple. So when you defile the temple, God says, I might have to destroy you. I might, oh, this is a bad brick. I'm going to have to throw this one aside. Not throw you into hell, but just maybe cast you aside. He's trying to build you and make this thing a holy temple unto the Lord. Now, there were two structures in the Old Testament. There was the tabernacle, and there was the temple. The tabernacle was temporary. It's kind of like us, right? We break it down, we carry it out, we move on. We break it down, we carry it out, we move on. The tabernacle refers to your body in 2 Corinthians 5, because this body, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, it's temporary, <laughs> You're going to put this body aside one day and get a body that never fails. That's why he likens your body to a tabernacle. But the temple was a permanent structure where God would abide permanently. The temple refers to the body of Christ in Ephesians because God's going to be with us forever. You got that? That's why he calls us a temple. Now Solomon took seven years to build a temple for the Lord. Seven's the number of perfection. But look at chapter 2, verse 13. You know who built this temple? Jesus Christ. The one greater than Solomon, he made this temple possible. 2.13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both, Jew and Gentile, one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, meaning two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both, that's Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him... We both have access by one spirit unto the Father. You know who did all the building for this holy temple? Jesus Christ. The one better than Solomon. He's the one preaching. He's the one dying. He's the one slaying. He's the one nailing and law to the cross. He's doing it all so you could be complete in him. Solomon took seven years to build the temple, the number of perfection, and Jesus Christ gave you a perfect sacrifice, a perfect offering to be a perfect savior to perfect you that you might be complete in him and part of that temple. Now, let's go to chapter 1 again. 
That's the building. Now let's look at the body. We'll spend a little time on the body because the book of Ephesians emphasizes the body more than anything else. Ephesians 1.23 says the church is his body. We read that before. Chapter 3, verse 6 says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. Chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body. The church is a body, a living, growing organism. Are you growing? You're supposed to grow. Now, the New Testament church is not an organization. Organizations are dead. They're man-made. Now, I don't mean any offense, but if you speak to someone who is a part of the Jehovah's Witness organization, they speak about the Watchtower organization. They claim to get their light from the organization. They actually honor and worship the organization. Organizations are things that men establish. Anything man establishes is dead. It's man-made. The church is an organism. It's a living being. Living things are God-made. Only God can give life. That's the law of biogenesis, right? Trace all life back. It goes back to the one who said, I am the life. So if this thing is a living organism, it means it came from the one who is eternal life. He gives us life. We're a living, growing organism. Now, we might, as a local congregation, have an incorporation and have done some things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church universal. I'm talking about every believer from every age in the church time that's been a part of this body that is this one organism that's growing and developing the way God wants us to. Ephesians 4.4. Now, here, we're going to get on the thing in a second. There is one body. There is only one spiritual body. There is not two like our hyper-dispensational brethren like us to imagine. They want to say, well, no, there was one group from Acts 1 to 7, and then Paul got saved, and then something else started. Sorry, that's not in the Bible. Let's look at Ephesians 3. Ready? For this cause, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Yes, the body mystery was revealed to Paul. They didn't know what was going on. They had no clue in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. They didn't know about a body. They knew about a nation. They didn't know about a body. It was revealed to Paul. In fact, it's explained in the 10th book of the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, which is the number of the Gentile. In the 10th book, God explains how the Gentiles be part of the same body as, as the Jew, be put in this one body called the body of Christ. And Paul says, they didn't get it. They didn't know. They couldn't see it. It was hidden. It was a mystery. God revealed it to me so I could tell it to you. To that I say, yes, Paul is special. Yes, Paul got revelation. Yes, Paul is somebody we got to follow because he's the apostle to the Gentiles and he's giving us this truth that was hidden before. But that's where it stops. Because in verse 7 and 8 he says, whereof I was made a minister. That's all he is, a minister. According to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Yes, the body mystery was revealed to Paul. No, the body mystery did not begin with Paul. People read that and say, well, Paul got grace. Paul, grace started with Paul. Grace started with Paul. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> this whole Bible's grace, right? The fact that God would think about man for 15 milliseconds is grace. It was, there was grace in the law. There's grace in the tribulation. There's grace in the millennium. The Bible says it's all of grace. Amen. But this gospel, yes, Paul was committed a different gospel, but... Paul doesn't say in verse 7 and 8 that I got some kind of grace that's all mine. No, he says, 
I got grace so that I could preach this to you guys. God gave me some help so that I could deliver this message to the Gentiles. He says that, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So don't get confused about that. Now, in case you're wondering out there in YouTube land or sitting here, go to Romans chapter 16. Let me just give you four verses. You will come across people, I hope you don't, because they split churches and are stubborn. They call themselves, ready, mid-Acts dispensationalists. They think that the church began with Paul, that the body of Christ began with Paul, that Paul was the first one in, and then after that, we all follow Paul. It's like, like this. You got close, but you missed it. You missed it, and you veered off. And I'm going to show you how right now it's impossible, according to the Bible, that this thing called the church started with Paul. Impossible. Because the Bible tells you it's impossible, right? They call it mid-Acts dispensationalism because they think that it started in the middle of the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. That's where they start dividing the Bible out. That's where they put the church. That's, that's a mistake. That's an error. And if you're watching at home, you can blow up the comments on the YouTube video. That's fine. I'll handle them later. But it's wrong. I'm not trying to be hateful. It's, it's just wrong. Look at uh, Romans 16, 7. Paul writes, Salute Andronicus, and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. I don't need to show you another verse. I'll give you three more, but I don't need to show you another verse. How could the body have begun with Paul if Paul's saying these other guys were in Christ before me? Think. It might, it might guys at home, it might do you good. Think. Think, right? How about 1 Corinthians 10? How about 1 Corinthians 10? Verse 32. 1 Corinthians 10, 32. All right. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, that's one group, nor to the Gentiles, that's another group, nor to the church of God. God says all of mankind breaks down into three groups. Jews, lost, Gentiles lost, saved people in the church of God. How could there be another group of people? Believing Israel? What is that? You made that up. Mystery Israel? You made that up. You're inventing another group. They invent another group, Acts 1 to 7. Oh no, they're in this special group called Believing Israel. They're in the mystery program. All these things they made up to make their charts look cool. The Bible says you're a Jew, or you're a Gentile, or you're in the church of God. So if you're saved... You're in the church of God. There's only one. There's only one body, he says. So you're inventing another group. God says there's only three groups. How about Galatians chapter 1? I just want to seal the coffin on this, all right? Galatians 1. You just, you know, talk to people long enough. Go on, God help you, go on YouTube. You'll see plenty of them out there. They're like, like monsters, like little, little robots that come crawling on your YouTube page just attacking you because they don't have the guts to go to a church. Uh, Galatians 1.13, right? If you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. How do you persecute a church that hasn't started yet? I mean, they're laughing because it's so, it's so absurd. I don't mean to laugh at someone that thinks that, but You've read too many books about and looked at too many pretty charts. I mean, the Bible says Paul persecuted the church. They were in Christ before me. How could he have started it? He couldn't have started it. It existed before him. Colossians 1. One last verse on this. Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Colossians 1.18. Ready? Um, speaking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. How could Paul be the start if Jesus Christ is the beginning? Amen. He started the church. He's the head. You know, comes out of a, you know, comes out first when that baby's delivered? The head. He's the head. He, the church begins with him. He says, I, he's the rock, not Paul. So the question becomes then, when does the body of Christ begin to be formed? When did the church, in a New Testament sense, start? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, all right? Let's look at 31. All right. I can already see the comments now. You know, 
I could always see the mid-axe dispensationalist pulling out that Bullinger and Stan, you know, O'Hare and Cornelius Stam and quoting their books that they've read. But just, just so you guys don't get caught up with this nonsense. Ephesians 5.31 says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So that statement appears four times in the Bible. One time in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. When something appears four times, God is establishing a truth. And the first time God uses that, we're going to look at in a moment. And the truth he's establishing is in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The spiritual truth of the husband and the wife has to do with Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. So I'm going to go back to the first time that expression for this cause shall a man leave father and mother. The first time it's used, which is in Genesis chapter 2. I'm not going to flip there. You can if you want. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 24, the first mention begins, and it's referring to the first marriage of Adam and Eve, right? And in Genesis 2.21, the first Adam's bride began to be formed when Adam was asleep. And in Genesis 2.21, the Lord performs an operation on Adam while he's asleep and pierced his side while he was asleep to form Eve, who pictures the church. Stay with me now. Psalm 13.3, John 11.13. Sleep is a type of death. So when Jesus Christ died, sleep, God pierced his side, didn't he? Didn't the soldiers pierce his side when he was already dead? They pierced his side like Adam's side was pierced when he was asleep. And, he be, and that's where the bride began when Jesus Christ, or after Jesus Christ, died. That's when the church began to be formed. Contrary to all the other charts and all the other stuff, that's when it began to be formed. It wasn't understood but that's when God began to start forming it. Just because no one knew what God was doing doesn't mean God wasn't doing it. You got me? I can have something in my pocket. I do. I can have something in my pocket right now, but you don't see it until I reveal it to you. You see that? And God was saving Gentiles, but Peter didn't see it until God revealed it to him in Acts chapter and God had been forming the bride since the cross but it wasn't revealed until Paul that's all now like a body go back to Ephesians 4.15 I hope that made some sense to you right? but if it doesn't I'll clarify but if you're just online and you want to fight with me we could do that another time right? 4.15 all right? 4.15 what is a body supposed to do? it's supposed to grow but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. The New Testament church is supposed to grow. Imagine if your body never grew, right? Imagine if, you know, you were, you know, just sitting there in the crib and just, you know, one year, two year, three year, you're still the same size, right? You never grew. That, that, that would be, you'd say something's, something's off here, right? Something's, imagine sitting in a church for five years, 10 years, 15 years, and you never grew, Never learned a verse, never witnessed anybody, never prayed, never did anything other than fill a seat. That something's odd there, isn't it? It's supposed to grow. <laughs> 16, you know what a healthy body's supposed to do also? 16, uh, 416, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, make it increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. A healthy body, the new, like the New Testament church, should be able to help itself grow. We're supposed to be helping each other grow. Like your white blood cells might fight the infection and the platelet might kind of help clot that cut. You know what? The, the body, when it's healthy, when it's functioning properly, is supposed to edify itself and build itself up, right? right? You, the body takes all these things that are put into it and it grows, right? How does that little baby grow up to be a six-foot guy? You know, you put some energy and some food into it, and the body just starts growing and building itself up, 
Right? That's how nature is supposed to work. You know, in the church, we listen to preaching, we read our Bible, we do stuff. You know what? This body is supposed to grow. It's supposed to grow if it's working right. And then the last picture, Ephesians 5, verse 25. The church is a bride. The church is a building. The church is a body. That's the emphasis of, of, of Ephesians. And the church is a bride. And there's a, there's a development there, right? Building, body, bride. The bride, this is the most intimate relationship of these two, right? This is like the holiest of all. You know, when the Bible talks about the tabernacle, there's the outer court, then there's the holy place, and then there's the holiest of all, where God abode. That's what, that's what the book of Ephesians is. It's taking you into the inner sanctum, into the holiest of all. That's what Song of Solomon is. It's, it's that mystical, holy of, holiest of all, where that relationship is. And this, the intimacy is right here. The husband and the wife, that's the most intimate relationship on the planet, right? And the married couple in Christ, I talked about this with Brian and Estelle a couple of weeks ago, the married couple in Christ is the greatest picture of Jesus Christ and his bride. Me and my kids, that's a pretty good picture, but that's not the greatest picture. The greatest picture on planet Earth of Christ and his bride is a husband loving a wife and a life, wife loving a husband. That's an that's a important picture. You don't want to break that picture because you know what happens when God's pictures get broken. You miss the promised land, Moses. So you don't want to break the picture if you can help it. And uh, you'll notice in this passage here, there are seven as statements, right? Seven times he says, a husband's as Christ, a wife as the church. He's constantly saying, don't miss the picture, guys. <laughs> don't miss the picture. Want to see some of it? Wives. You know what he tells the wife to do? 22, submit as unto the Lord. You know what he says in 24? As the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. He says, wives, submit as unto the Lord, be subject as the church is supposed to be unto Christ. That's all the woman has to do. That's the only responsibility he lays on the woman. That's the only responsibility he lays on you, church. Submit and be subject to him. That's it. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to figure it out by yourself. Just submit to God's will and be subject unto the Lord, and he'll lead you the way he wants to lead you. The picture is the marriage relationship. Now, husbands, they get bopped. They get a lot more put on them, right? Verse 23, he says, you're the head, right? The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. That doesn't mean you're the head, that you're the head honcho. That means you're the one that's supposed to see, think, look ahead, and you're the one that's supposed to save your wife from falling, he says in verse 25, 28, and 33, love as Christ also loved the church. 28, love their wives as their own body. Verse 33, um, love his wife, um, so let everyone so love his wife even as himself. And then verse 29, he says, nourish and cherish as, 29, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. In short, the Lord lays a lot more on the husband than he does the wife. A lot more. Anybody that thinks the Bible is, is masochistic and against women has never really read it. Because the Bible puts it all on the man and just kind of gives the woman a pass. Says, you just follow this guy. And he starts giving the guy left hooks and right crosses and tells him all the stuff he's supposed to be and do. He dumps it on the man and says, you just be subject to him. In the world, the husband wants to be served like the king of his castle, right? He wants to come home. The food is hot on the table. And, you know, just, he just wants to sit back, have his feet rubbed, and just, you know, reign in his domain with his, you know, scepter called the remote. You know, that's what he wants to do. In the Bible, the husband should serve if he wants to be like the king of kings. In the world, he wants to be treated like a king. In the Bible, you're supposed to be like the king of kings. And the king of kings served, got down, washed their feet, and he nourishes and he cherishes. And in verse 30, here's the picture. This is the picture. And we break this picture. He says, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones for this cause, because of the picture of Christ and his church, 
shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Think about what Jesus Christ did to get you as his bride. He left his father. He left his comfort zone. He left all that he had. What? And he suffered. What have you left? What are you suffering through? We want it to be easy. We want it to be handed to us. That's not how Jesus Christ got a bride. He got a bride by leaving some things behind that were comfortable and knowing and where he was treated like a king, he left that behind and suffered to secure a bride. Right? That's not a marriage seminar, but it makes good marriage preaching. All right? Now, let's get to some big ideas. All right? Let's finish with some big ideas. I was just working that in for you, Brian and Estella. Just working that in. Those little, little, you got it, man. All right? I got two big ideas in the book of Ephesians. Number one, you got to get your standing before you can improve your state, right? You got to get, you got to get this down before you're going to improve this. That's how the book is laid out, right? The book of Ephesians is about the body of Christ. It shows you how to grow as a Christian. It shows you where to put the emphasis, Chapters 1 to 3, the Lord shows you who you are in Christ. He spends three whole chapters focusing on your identity. Nothing about your behavior, nothing about your actions, nothing about what you should or should not do, but who you are. And then he spends the last three chapters showing you how to walk with Christ, the activities you should have. He starts with identity. And he ends with activity. You know what that tells me? The flesh wants to get it the other way around. The flesh starts with behavior, but God starts with identity. But if you don't know who you are in Christ, you'll never do what you should do as a Christian. If you don't know who you are, and we got so many Christians out there, they're going to marriage seminars, they're going to, you know, stewardship seminars, they're, you know, uh, going to things about, uh, you know, cursing and, and this and that. They're learning all about the behavior. How do I maintain my relationships? How should I dress? What do I do with my money? And then getting the cart before the horse. God says, why don't you spend some time figuring out who you are in Christ, learning the riches you have, learning where I've put you, learning what I've done for you, learning what you're a part of. And if you could get that doctrine, it would affect your deeds. It would change your walk. If you really believe that you were part of a, of a thing called the body of Christ that never existed before in the plan of God, and you're a special holy temple that is meant to glorify God when he suffered in his physical body, and you're supposed to be the body that he gets glorified in, don't you think if you meditated on that, it might change the way you look at yourself in the mirror tomorrow morning before you step out for work? Right? Don't you think it might change the way you speak to your wife or you speak to your boss if you realize that you're supposed you're being watched by principalities and powers in heavenly places that by you might be known the manifold wisdom of God? If you put that on your radar, it would change you. You see, the flesh wants fast results. They want to treat the symptoms. Okay, clean up your dress, clean up your mouth, clean up your this. Give something to God. Do some of that. And, and sometimes preachers, I'm probably guilty of this too, we hammer behavior, 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 behavior. It's all outward. God's way of building Christians focuses on the inward. And it takes time. That's why we don't like it. You know what Pastor Dean told me years ago before I ever came out here and I was thinking about it? He said, brother, he said, and he was taking something he learned from Pastor Mel. He said, brother, I challenged Pastor Mel one time. I said, what are you doing? How are you building this church? And Pastor Mel very wisely said, I didn't come here to build a church. I came here to build Christians. And you know what Pastor Dean said to me? He said, brother, if you do it right, it's going to be slow and it's going to be hard. Because it's easy to do it fast. It's easy to kind of just, you know what? It's easy to take steroids, Right? <laughs> It's easy, because you know what steroids do? They kind of give you an artificial pump. They give you an artificial high. It's not natural, but it's fast. And you get big fast. And it's attractive. And it's alluring to people. But it's not real growth. All the little connective tissues that are going on inside, they're not growing at the same pace as the muscle. See so you know what happens? You get joint injuries. 
because the muscle has grown too fast, the ligaments and the tendons, they haven't grown at the right pace to support all that weight. And so you get injured, you get hurt, you stumble, you fall, you break, right? Church, we can hammer behavior. We could slam you about your haircuts, your, your dress, and just go after your behavior, behavior, behavior. You know what? We can get you looking real good on the outside, but it hasn't, you haven't grown right on the inside. So it's going to be easy to fall, easy to stumble, easy to trip up. We've got to aim at the heart. We've got to aim where God says. And we'll step back, and it might say, my goodness, this guy's been coming to church for five years. Has anything changed? And then you know what? You see a little something here. Amen. A little something there. He said, but it's not fast enough. Hey, it's very easy to go too fast for God. It's very difficult to go too slow for God. Very difficult. And I don't like that because I'm American, and I run like 1,000 miles an hour in my head, and I want to go fast, fast, fast. And God says, slow down, son. Wait on the Lord. Very easy to go too fast. So the first big takeaway is the book shows you how to think. Get this down, and this will affect this. This comes first, then this will follow. That's the organic way of growing as a Christian. That's why we teach the Bible to you. That's why we focus on your identity in Christ. That's why we give you doctrine, because the doctrine is supposed to affect your deeds. Second big idea. If you're saved, this book gives you three magic words, for lack of a better thing. Sit, walk, stand. You've got to sit, then you've got to walk, then you've got to stand. Chapter one to three is all about sitting. The first thing you got to do as a Christian is you got to sit. You got to be still and learn who you are in Christ. Just sit down and dwell on it. How about some of your blessings? Look at chapter one. How about the fact that verse one, you're in Christ? Woo! How about that? You're a part of Christ. How about verse four, that ye, you were chosen in him? How about verse five, that you've been adopted in him? How about verse six, that now you're accepted in the beloved? How about verse 7, that you're forgiven of all your trespasses? How about verse 11, that you're predestinated to an inheritance? That God's got an inheritance and a new body waiting for you. Why? Because you're in Christ. That all starts in verse 1. How about chapter 2, verse 1? How about that he quickened you, that he gave you life when you were dead in trespasses and sins? How about verse 10, that now you've been created unto good works. Now God has made you so that you could do something that actually pleases him and counts for him in eternity. How about 2.13? How about you were made nigh? You were a stranger. You were on the outside. The law said, stay back, you dirty Gentile. And the grace said, come on in and get real close. Amen. How about, what have you thought about that? Right? What about your redemption? Chapter 1. What have you thought about just your redemption? How verses 4 to 6, how it was planned by the Father, that he conceived this glorious redemption, that he would give you a Savior, put you in that Savior, and appropriate all those Savior's blessings to you. It was planned by the Father. How about verses 7 to 12, that it was paid by the Son? Right? Paid by the Son. And how about verses 13 to 14, that it was performed by the Spirit? That that Spirit then took that blessing and sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. That the whole Trinity was orchestrating your salvation. God planned it, the Son paid for it, and the Holy Spirit performed it. What if you thought about that for a little while? That's pretty wild. You think about that. You just sit. Somebody gets saved. You say, what do I do? Nothing. Fall in love with your Savior. Right? What should I do? I don't know. Read your Bible and pray every day. Come to church. Learn the Bible. Fall in love with the Savior. Find out about his love for you that you might fall in love with him. That's what, you, what do I got to do? I got saved. What do I do? Sit. Sit. Somebody comes to the church. What am I going to do? Just sit down for a while Amen. and learn Amen. and take in God's word and just grow and just, just kind of marinate in that. Just let that stuff kind of stew on you and help you to grow. And then verses 4 to 5, then you walk. See? You sit, and then it talks about walking. Right? Then you learn to walk. You can't sit forever. 
Right? I remember sitting next to Eli years and years ago when I was newly saved, and he would sit there and I'd watch him witness to people, watch him witness to people. You know what? It got to a point where he probably remembers, I couldn't sit next to him anymore. I had to go find somebody myself and go talk to them. I said, I, I've been sitting here so long. He was talking to one guy one time on the ferry, and I just got up and I found somebody else. Right? When it's time to walk, you'll know when it's time to walk. And not everybody walks at the same pace. Christian over there walked at eight and a half months. Adriana, 10 months. But you know what? They're both walking now. <laughs> you know, so they're both walking now. And some Christians walk a little sooner than other Christians. That's okay. But we're all going to walk. Sometimes you've got to take a little longer, but you're all going to walk. You work out your own salvation. You're taking all this stuff in, and guess what? Eventually, you just be like, i got to do something with it. i got to tell my mom about this. i got to tell my coworkers about this. i got to pray about this. i got to fast a little bit. Maybe I'm going to sacrifice something. You take all that input in, it's going to produce some output. Amen. Naturally, organically, by the Holy Spirit of God. Not by me or not by you, but by God's working through you. And that's a walk of faith. And it takes time, and we want it yesterday. Give me the 12 steps to being a super Christian. There are no 12 steps. There's one step, Jesus. <laughs> and that step sometimes is a long step and with lots of ups and downs. Say, God, I thought I learned this lesson. need to learn it again. Well, I trusted you for salvation. Yeah, but there's a whole lot more trusting you need to do. Okay? It takes time. And then, finally, chapter 6, you got to stand. You got to continue. You got to be steady. You got to be unchanged. 6.10. 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You got to stand against the wiles of the devil. You're in a fight. Verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand against the wiles of the devil. That's verses 10 to 12. And stand in the whole armor of God. You ain't doing it on your own. You're not charging hell with a squirt gun, right? You better put on that whole armor. You better dive into that book and see all those pieces of armor and realize what well, is none for your knees down because you need to pray and there's none for your back because there's no retreat. Find out about the helmet. Find out about the breastplate. Find out about the, the, the feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Find about the shield of faith. Get that sword of the spirit. your only offensive weapon. You better learn about it. You need every piece of that armor to contend with what you're up against. The world is tough out there. It's not friendly to you Christians. It's, it's antithetical to you. Everything about it is to meant, meant to turn you away from God. You better suit up before you step out. 14. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Stand because the evil day is coming. This is not the Christian life. Church is a recharge, a fresh look, a challenge, a place to grow, a hospital maybe, if need be. You know what Christianity is lived? Out there. You take what's in here and you go out there. And the day is a coming when I'm not going to be there Mom's not going to be there. Dad's not going to be there. Disciple is not going to be there. It's going to be you and that God's going to let the devil into your Eden to see if you'll stand. And he let him do it in the garden and he'll let him do it to you because he wants to see, will you stand? And Martin Luther said, here I stand. I can do no other. All you got to do is stand. That's all you got to do is Stand. You don't have to charge. You don't have to rush. You don't have to jump over a wall. You just got to stand. You just got to stand. By God's grace, just stand. Some of you are going through the evil day. You don't have to be a hero. You just have to stand. That's it. Right? When you're staring at that hospital bed, you know what, and your world's crashing in on you, you know what you got to do? You just got to stand. When the family's turning against you or the things are turning against you, you know what you got to do? You don't have to win the battle. You just got to stand. Just be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. He just says, stand. Right. Having done all, stand. Just don't fall down. Don't retreat. Just stand. You see the progression? If you sit long enough and just dwell on all those blessings of your standing, you know what starts happening? You start walking in a blessed state. The standing affects your state. And then you know what happens? Once you start walking for God a little bit, 
In comes old Splitfoot, and the opposition comes. The honeymoon ends, the opposition comes, and that's when it's time to stand. So you got to sit, you got to walk, and then when the enemy shows his ugly face, you got to stand. And Ephesians takes you from the throne room and all those intimate things about your relationship with Christ all the way, and it ends in the armory, ready to go to battle. And like I said before, there's nothing for your back because there's no retreat. There's no retreat. Just stand. That's the book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you tonight. We just pray it could be a blessing, Lord. We learn something and maybe something to challenge our hearts, Lord, to just stand for one more day. Lord, you said sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Just give us the grace to stand each day, one day at a time, one foot in front of the other. No points for style, Lord. Help us to learn about who we are, that we might be who we should be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.